And I think you just need to persist and just know that there's just a lot of people that are really freaking busy. They're not ignoring you. They probably saw your message and they just didn't have the mental capacity at that moment or the time to get back to you. And if they're really that interested as a prospect, they will appreciate the persistence. I think we've all been in situations where you've had a prospect that will literally reply back to an email after it's your seventh or eighth attempt. And they will say, thank you for your persistence. Those are the words they will use. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Um, today, we've got Scott Sambucci with us, and we're going to talk about how to stop hustling and start scaling your sales success. Scott, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Dude, happy to be here. Glad to be here. So just by way of introduction, uh, over the past 20 years, Scott's built sales teams, sales processes, and products for three successful startups. Scott is the founder of Sales Qualia, which is a company focused on improving sales performance. And he's the host of the Startup Selling Podcast and the author of the book, Stop Hustling, Start Scaling. Uh, how to ramp up your B2B startups, repeatable revenue with the Q framework. So first question, why is hustling not enough in sales to reference the, uh, the title of your, your book? Yeah. And, and you know, whether you're out there in the field every day doing sales or managing your team or you're running a company. Um, and by the way, I like how you asked the question why it's not enough. Like hustling is, you just assume it's table stakes. If you're out there and you, you're a salesperson, a sales manager running a company, um, you can't get very far unless you're willing to put in the hard work and put in the hustle. The reason I say it's not enough is that, you know, after a while, the hustling, if all you're doing is hustling and hard working, you just, number one, you're going to run out of energy. Number two, you're going to run out of time. And number three, you're just going to get frustrated with your inability to actually grow and scale your own individual systems, whether it's a territory, a team, or a company. And so in the book, we talk about, you know, how do you stop hustling and start scaling the business with a focus on building repeatable systems around lead generation, managing your sales pipeline, and your customer conversions so that you can actually grow and ultimately scale the work that you're doing every day. Well, also in your book, you give tips for salespeople to talk about what prospects and customers care about the most. Um, what, what do they care about the most and how can salespeople bring this up in their conversations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think about this through a couple of different lenses. I've been a salesperson in the field and I've attended, you know, the big, the big sales meeting where the product teams each have an hour to tell you about their, their version of the product or their feature, and they're just product dumping, right? It's, they're just teaching you about the product. And so it's easy then as a salesperson to absorb that information and then go, go out to the field programmed with that information and say, well, I've got to talk about these features. I've got to talk about these upgrades. I've got to talk about this new feature set or this new product set and product, product, product. Um, Additionally, if, you know, if you're a founder of a company, right, you've built the company, you've built the product, it's your baby, right? You built the product to solve, you know, a problem in the marketplace and you want to show people, hey, this, this is what I built because it's going to help you. And what we talk about all the time is that before you get to product, the most important thing you got to do is get to problem because if there's no problem, there's no sale. 
and further, not, not just like a nuisance or not just something that's holding people back in the work that they're doing, talking about your prospects, but specifically getting to a place where it's a critical business issue or it's a director level objective. It's something that if, if you don't, like as a salesperson, you can do lots of demos. In fact, I just did a LinkedIn Live today um, and it was all around your product demos and why de product demos should be short. How demos are not a stage in the sale. Demos should never, you should never be looking for how do you get, how, how many opportunities can you get to the demo stage? Demos should not be a stage. Demos should be a catalyst out of the early part of your sales process into a late stage of your sales process because you've shown how your product solves the problem that you've identified for your prospects. So that's why I say like the number one thing is focus on problem. And that's question number one in the Q framework that we choose standing for questions. The seven questions in the Q framework. Um, the first one is what problem are you solving for your prospects? And that has to be the number one place to start with every sales conversation. And how do you identify your prospects key business issues um, and, and how do you leverage them? And is, is that also in the Q framework? Yeah, there, there is. So there's, there's a couple factors to this, which is um, number questions number two and three are related to this is, which is question number two is which industry niche segment, you know, vertical, whatever way you want to put your arms around a specific market. So, you know, what is your ideal customer profile? And question number three is, who are the buyers? Who are the individual people, the executives, the IT people, the users, the managers, who are all the people that you know are going to be involved with that, with that decision? And so if you've done a good job of getting clear on an ICP and a specific target market or target segment, and you know who those buyers are, by being out there in the field every day, you should at least have a pretty clear hypothesis around the types of problems that your target markets tend to have. And so what that allows you to do as a salesperson is to walk into those conversations more on a peer to peer level, because that allows you to talk to those prospects from the, from their standpoint, which is like, Hey, I have these, these certain problems and it allows you to then ask good questions around customer discovery or needs analysis to then identify whether or not, Hey, does this specific prospect have, the problem that we tend to solve really well with our products or service. So it just comes down to having a really clear focus. Who's your target market? What problems have you solved in the past? And being able to show successful case studies for other customers, just like the prospects that you're speaking with. Yeah, focusing on the right customers is so important and the right, the, the right prospects that have the types of problems that you, that you solve how would you say when you're sitting down with a customer, how do you, what, what do you recommend in terms of identifying what that individual customer's problems are at, that, that you might be able to help with? So I think there's a, there's a couple of different ways to, to approach this. And I think like the, the more traditional way would be to, you know, book that time, you know, get a meeting with a target prospect and then, you know, have that conversation with them, ask them questions about, you know, what are you struggling with every day? When we work with customers like you, we find that, you know, this tends to be, you know, a big problem for them, or this tends to be a big challenge. Is that the situation for you? I mean, it's a, that's a more traditional way of doing it. What, what we like to do and what we like to teach our clients is actually bringing in case studies and information from customer interviews that you've done. So if you think about, and you could do this, if you're a salesperson, a manager, a founder, it doesn't matter who you are. If you go back to your current customers, and you do a retro 
and, and this is not a conversation around like having a specific case study that you're going to video and use for marketing purposes. It's, it's literally an interview where you sit down and you say, listen, you know, you've been a customer for the last six months. It looks like you're having a lot of success with our product. Um, you know, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about number one, your decision process. And number two, what are the, what other additional benefits or outcomes have you gotten from using our product that weren't part of the decision? And so by sourcing that information from your current customers, it gives you as a seller a lot more leverage. You become almost like the, the, the core uh, information provider for the rest of the market, because then you can walk into those, those future customers and say, hey, you know, you know, over the last six months, we've been working with these three other customers in your market, and they've been successful in implementing our product. Here's the, what they struggled with, and here's why they're using our solution. Does that sound familiar to you? Are those the kind of results you're looking to get? Do you have those challenges yourself? And what that does is it, it really kind of removes the sense of I'm interrogating the prospect by asking a bunch of like needs discovery or needs analysis, customer discovery questions. And instead of saying like, I'm, I'm almost like the conduit of information. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you know, dissect the marketplace and help you as a prospect understand that, hey, number one, you're not alone. A lot of people struggle with this. And number two, if you want some more help, here's some other customers that have had success. And that implicitly helps you sell later on because then you, then you can remove the, the doubt that clients are going to have, your prospects are going to have later in the sales cycle as to whether or not they think your solution could work. Well, yeah, especially in these tough economic times, um, you know, people, it's so important to, to show the return on investment that, it, that your customers and prospects are going to get from, from having your, your product, you know, the, the, what your product costs and whether or not they have a budget and whether there's money to buy this in the first place is, is on the forefront of so many people's minds. Um, is, would you say those case studies that you're talking about are the key to a salesperson proving out to their prospects that, that their product and service is a product or service is like a, it's an investment and in getting around those, mm -hmm. those, uh, those hurdles of, Oh, we don't have the budget for this or, Oh, this costs too much. I, th I think they can be useful down the road when, you know, ultimately, cause right now I think, you know, in a post COVID world, one of the things that we've been working on with all of our clients is like, regardless of who you sold to in the past, in your target markets, whether it's, you know, a COO, a CTO, a product manager, a director of sales, whoever is your, you know, key sponsor and you, and who's going to be ultimately the person paying for your service, just know going forward, the CFO is also now involved. You can just assume that the CFO is going to be involved with every purchase because people are scrutinizing uh, every, every decision, right? So those case studies can be useful when you're having those economic buyer decisions and as well as doing things like ROI analysis later on in the sales process. Where I, where I find this can be particularly useful is early in the sale when, you know, sometimes number one, your prospects aren't always willing to open up to you directly. Um, you know, you're the salesperson, right? And it's, it's unlike um, other situations where like they might be more open to their peers they might be more open to their colleagues but you're the salesperson right they don't sometimes they're just they don't have yet the trust with you and so that's that's one reason why they not, might not open up and so if instead you can share another customer story or share hey these are what other people in the marketplace are thinking then it helps that person feel like oh okay well this person in front of me has helped these other people so it makes it okay for me to share 
what's going on. So that's um, one reason is it makes them more open to share. Number two, um, in a lot of cases, you know, the people that you're speaking with don't have a complete view of the problem themselves. So if you think about when you're doing your prospecting or you're going out to those, you know, people that come to your website and request a demo or meetings that get set up, a lot of times they're not necessarily the highest level people in the organization. Sometimes they're director level, middle of the organization. And the middle of the organization people don't always have the full perspective of the problem that you solve. And so by showing them case studies and examples and, and sharing customer stories about other problems that other, co other companies like them have had, what that allows those director level people is to get some better perspective and a different perception on the problem they have. So it helps you actually help them articulate what that problem is and then allows you to wiggle around within the organization and say, well, look, it sounds like you've got some perspective on this problem. Um, but again, like when we work with other customers just like you, you know, oftentimes the CTO will get involved. So why don't we just have a quick chat with the CTO and get that person's perspective on this problem. And it allows you to just have a, a lot more control over the sales process and allows you to focus in on that customer problem as opposed to you know, jumping on a demo and showing that mid-level person, here's how the product works, what do you think? Well, they may go, hey, that looks really cool. You know, and give you lots of applause. But if they're not clear on how it's gonna solve the problem, or they're not clear on how big the problem actually is at their organization and how it's impacting that company's ability to, to move forward or accomplish a strategic, a strategic initiative, then there's not gonna be, again, there, there won't be a sale. The problem needs to be big enough. It needs to be a critical business issue or it needs to be a director level objective in most cases in order for that enterprise sale to be executed. Makes, makes perfect sense to me. Um, we, we even, like I personally get involved in our case studies at Badger still. Like I, I when we have a case study, I'll get on the phone and interview the person because I, A, I wanna, I wanna meet some of our happiest customers and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, because I, I, I haven't always met them. Um, but uh, but I, I just like walking through that process with them and just kind of interviewing them and hearing what results did you get? And I, I, you know, I just kind of ask them, I, mean, I guess I'm asking them all similar questions um, and the marketing team is writing down their answers and we record it and produce a nice little, you know, two page pamphlet on, on uh, you know, a little PDF that people can download and put it on the website and stuff. But I really think it's important for prospects to be able to go and look at well straight from the horse's mouth why did this company who's kind of like us why why did they use this product what did they get out of it what are their how do they describe the value and you know and their names on there right like you can look them up on linkedin if you want right They're, it's a real person mm -hmm. and, and i i think that that really communicate I, I think everyone should do more case studies and you can never have too many of them basically like because they it really does it, it'll it it causes your prospects and frankly your sales team to focus on the actual benefits that a, that the the customer of your product will will gain from using the product. Well, and I would take it a step further. Like again, as like a salesperson, you, it's easy for us to for you and I see we're talking about case studies and it's a marketing function and we're going to hit record and create this two pager. What I'm what I'm what I'm saying is like as a salesperson you've got relationships with your current customers. You, you got them to buy the product. You helped them buy that product in the first place. You've been helping them to implement. You've probably been supporting them in some way. You have that relationship. So don't wait around for the marketing team to create some kind of case study. Like be curious. Uh, I remember when I was selling college textbooks, this is going back 25 years. Uh, I was selling college textbooks books for what was then Prentice Hall. It's now Pearson Education. And I had a defined territory, right? I had the Western half of Northern 
of North Carolina. I had probably about 15 community colleges and about 10 four-year universities. And those four-year universities were some really big schools and a couple of small private schools. Um, and so if I'm going, if, as I was going out there selling college textbooks to professors to use in those courses, if I'm selling to a community college, for example, and it's a general chemistry class, you know, chemistry 101 or biology 101, if I've got a customer, and I, and I used to do this on a regular basis, if I had a customer using that book already, they're already using one of our textbooks, I would go in there and talk to that, that professor, that instructor, and say, hey, you know, I noticed you've been using our book for the last two editions. Um, what is it about the book that you find particularly useful? What, is, what are you, why did you, why do you use this book versus the other 20 internal biology books that are out there? How do your students like it? What do your students tell you that they like about the textbook? And you get the, you get that information. And so that as a sale, that's not like a case study from a marketing team. That's just me using that information while I'm already on campus. So when I go to the next campus, if I'm at Forsyth Community College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I drive up the road to Greensboro Community College, 50 miles away, and I'm in that chemistry department or that biology department, I can say, hey, listen, I, I noticed that you're using another textbook from McGraw-Hill or Thompson or whoever. Um, you know, we just published a new edition of this new biology book. And I was, you know, would you be open to a couple of, you know, having a conversation about that book? And they go, yeah, that sounds good. Cool, so before we start, you know, tell me about some of the things that you're challenged with in you know, teaching biology, and they'll give you this sort of normal stuff. You know, students are in community college, they're not very motivated. Students here are just trying to like get nursing degrees or um, they don't really want to do biology, but they know they have to because it's a required course and they kind of go through the normal stuff. And so by getting that information, now I can match that to the information that I gleaned from that customer interview I did with the professor or the instructor at Winston in, in Winston-Salem and say, okay, that's really interesting because you told me three key things. Like number one, students aren't very motivated. Two, it's a hard course to teach. And three, that you have a lot of nursing students that are only taking this course because it's a, it's a prereq. So funny enough, I just spoke to XYZ instructor over at, at Forsyth Community College. And this is why she is using the book because those three points are exactly three of the reasons why she really likes using this text. Because let me show you actually in, you know, at, at the end of every chapter, we have this, uh, uh, this, this one uh, text box, which explains how this chapter relates to the medical field. Right, I'm sort of making this up because I'm going back 25 mm -hmm. years. Sure. But what that allows me to do, it's not me telling the professor directly, like, "Hey, you said nursing students are really uh, struggling with this class, or they're not enjoying the class because they don't. It's just a prereq." And then go, "Oh, let's go. Let's look at the end of the chapter. Let me show you this this vignette about medical field applications to biology." Instead, I open the conversation with, "Hey, you know, I just came from this other professor. This is what she told me." And now there's just a lot more validation because it's, it's actually not me, the salesperson telling the professor because they're gonna view me as having a bias, of course, which I do. Instead, it's like, hey, this is what that professor just told me. And now all of a sudden I become a valuable resource because then I can say, oh, and by the way, like I work with 13 other community colleges in North Carolina and there's four others that are also using this book that also have a lot of nursing students. And now all of a sudden there's this almost like social validation around the product because I've done the work to just go back and have that interview. It's easy for me to just ignore that customer and say, okay, they're already buying the book. There's not much you need to do. But if instead of, if I turn it into a service call and then ask a couple of really short questions, now I've got this, this entire almost like inventory of content and information that I can share with other, other potential buyers. 
So that's what I'm referring to in terms of getting people to, to talk about their problems and focus in on using the leverage that you have with your existing customers in order to open up the conversations that you know you need to have in order to have an opportunity to make that sale. I love it. Yeah, I think as a, as a sales manager, to, to zoom back a little, you can enable your team to share these stories, like create, you know, open up a Google Doc or have a, have a shared site where they can very quickly and easily type in the name of the company and the, you know, where is the company located? What is their business? And what is the key value they got out of it? So they can kind of tell the story of, of a whole bunch of different um, companies in a whole bunch of different industries. And they can sort the sheet by industry and pull up a whole bunch of, well, here's, here's a whole bunch, here's five people in manufacturing and their stories. And then they can, if, if, before they go to a, uh, and, and this one actually has a case study associated with it. Um, you know, you can just drop the link in there and, and then when they, before a meeting, they can kind of have access to that resource and, and have some stories at the, you know, at the tip of their mind on the tip of the tongue rather to, uh, to, that they can then bring up in the meeting that are, that are really relevant. Yeah. I mean, we do that ourselves here at our company at sales quality. I mean, we, uh, as we work with, with early stage startups, we're helping them build their sales process. Right. And so we're helping them with building specific systems like an outbound uh, selling strategy or uh, lead qualification strategy or how to run your demos the right way. Like all of these core systems that are required that, you know, again, most, most founders don't know how to build them. So that's why we help them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we do internally is exactly what you just described, Steve, is whether it's internally where we have, you know, a Slack message from a client that says, hey, I just ran the product demo exactly the way you taught me to do it. And here's what happened. And you can just, you know, you see that, you know, that enthusiasm and excitement in the, in the message. And looks, it looks like we're going to go to contract on this deal in the next two months. Well, our team knows as soon as you see that in Slack, just grab a screenshot. And then we have a Google Doc where we just put, it's, it's called Client Wins. And we just, it's just a screenshot, something really simple. Um, we do the same thing on LinkedIn. We just look through LinkedIn at any time, for example, one of our clients is getting booked on a podcast like yours or they're running an event or they've been a speaker or they've had other, you know, big success. They're announcing a big win that they've had a press release with a new client screenshot, pop it in that Google doc. So that when we're talking to our future customers, people that are interested in working in the program, they go, gosh, like I'm really struggling with my demos and I know I need to get an outbound strategy in place. And like my pricing is kind of all over the place. Like I really wish you could help me. Well, sure. I can talk about our program. I can talk about how we help with that. But what that allows me to do is I can just go to that Google doc and go, Oh, well, let me just grab these five screenshots and I'm just going to pop in an email over to you. Cause these companies are just like you, you know, they're, you know, seed from companies, 500 K in revenue, trying to get to a million in the next 12 months. They're struggling with the same things, demos and outbound and pricing. Here's some success stories. And like that, that has so much more weight with a prospect and it took almost no work for us. All we had to do is like grab a screenshot. So even if, if you're an individual sales rep, you could like buddy up with two or three or four other reps in your territory or talk to your manager. Hey, let's just put together a simple Google doc. It doesn't have to be complex. You don't have to overthink it. It doesn't have to turn into some like big database. In fact, the screenshots are way, way more effective than just telling someone, Hey, you know, this is what our clients told us. Like here's a screenshot of the actual Slack message that John sent us two hours after he had the meeting with that big bank. Like we can help you with your demo too. Just like that. Is that the kind of result you'd like to get? Yes, I would. And it just makes it so much easier for us to show startup founders why they would want to work with us and how we can help them. 
So you can, you can do the same thing as a team or a manager. You don't, don't wait for marketing to do this. Marketing's busy. They're already doing a lot of other stuff. So just take this on your own, take the ownership and do it. Or, and then if you're just an individual rep and you don't have somebody to buddy up with, just do it on your own. I bet you could go back through your emails with customers that you've had, customers you're working with, or Zoom calls like this. You've got these all recorded. How many times have you been on a, on a call with a customer and you know, you're doing like a quarterly business review with a big account? And during that quarterly business review, you know, they spent a couple of minutes talking about like how excited they are because now we, we've got 20 people that are now using the platform and we're getting output of 50 people that would, it used to take us 50 people to get the same output, but now because we're using your software, it only takes us 20 people. And those extra 30 people were able to move over to this other department and we were able to do this or that. And we're really excited. That's, that, that's so critical. That information is so important. So you could just go into your Zoom file and then like, again, by yourself if you needed to, go to Upwork and hire a virtual assistant five bucks an hour, somebody in you know, the Philippines or Pakistan or India and say, hey, from minute eight to minute like 12 and a half, can you just pull that section out of the video and just make a file for me? And now you've got the data, if you don't use it, it just gets sequestered, it gets lost, it goes ephemeral. So when you see that, just make a note to yourself on a post-it note in the middle of that QBR, you know, grab customer story. And then afterwards, even if you have to pay out of, free, out of it, out of your own pocket, it's like, okay, for 20 bucks, I pay somebody four hours and pull that data out. And now I've got that. Now I've got my own little video case study for my own customers. So it's just a matter of like taking ownership of this and not waiting around for marketing and saying like, oh, it's too bad we don't have enough case studies. It's like, go do the work. You've got all the information. You're in the field every single day talking to customers. So go make it happen. Yeah, I love that. Um... I think it, a lot of times salespeople just need to take control of like, there's a, if there's a hole in the marketing or hole in, you know, cause they're the feet on the street, right? And marketing has often has different priorities and, and already has kind of a strategy in place. But a lot of the stuff that you, a salesperson needs from a marketing perspective of, of this nature, they can just, they can just do, they can create, especially as a group. If you share the share Google doc out of this nature to the team, they can all add to it. Yeah. And, you can create really great resources that, that are tools effectively for the sales team. Yeah, and if you're an early stage company, like the ones we coach, most of them don't even have a director of marketing or marketing department. It's like, right. it's the founder and a couple of salespeople at best. And you're like, gosh, I wish we had more marketing collateral. And the first thing I do is I'm like, you, you have all the marketing collateral you need. It's in your email, it's in your meetings, <laughs> in your Zoom recordings, it's in your LinkedIn messages. Like all you have to do is go find it and pull it out and just make it a habit, you know, whether it's a daily habit or a weekly habit and just tell your team, look, you know, at the end of the week, I want everybody to find three customer wins, however big or small they are. They don't have to be, Hey, we helped this customer close a million dollar deal. It could be something like, Hey, because of the work that we did last week, um, we were able to get three new leads booked for meetings. It doesn't feel like a big win, but it's enough. It's just like, it's another little success story. And you keep grabbing that stuff and create a Slack channel or a Google Doc. And that becomes your marketing over time. So mm -hmm. all of the assets are there. All the data is there. The information is there. You just got to take that extra step to use it. And what you're going to find is it's going to make your sales conversations go that much better. Because you, you can use a lot of that information pre-call. So let's say you, know, you might have like a short qualification call with somebody and now you've got the demo booked for the next week. Hey, between now and that, and that demo, what if you could share two or three little customer stories in an email? Say, hey, going into 
the call next week with you and the rest of the team when you show the product, I think you should be really excited because here's why. I went back and looked at a couple of conversations I've had with our, with our current customers just like you over the last three weeks. And here's like three quick wins or three places where we've helped people just like you get results. And so make sure in our call next week that you ask me about those so I can talk to you about specifically how they're using our platform. And it just, it just creates like, you're, you're just creating so much more enthusiasm and getting people warmed up. Because I mean, I don't know about you, but I've, I've booked meetings like two weeks in advance. And then by the time you get to the meeting, they're like, oh yeah, like, why are we here? <laughs> what, what, what was the purpose of the call? Like, tell me about you guys. What do you do again? Um, now, hopefully that doesn't happen. But instead, like you can, you can use that space between that maybe early call and the demo in a week or two and get people warmed up. And it all goes back to... Like the, the whole reason we, we got on this thread is like understanding your customer's problems and helping them see how they get results. It's not about your product. It's easy to go out there and just show product demos and I booked five demos this week or I've done five demos this week. I'm doing my job as a salesperson. Woohoo! It's like, no, you're not. You don't get paid for doing product demos. What you get paid to do is help your customers get results. Absolutely. Well, what you talk about... Uh keeping control how, how can how can salespeople keep control during a sales call so you know one of the things that's and look i i i personally sometimes still make this mistake you know if you are a seller like let's face it right you're the seller they're the buyer you want them to buy stuff and there's this sense of not wanting to push too far you know in terms of asking questions or making suggestions right you don't want to make them feel like you're the pushy salesperson but what I found in my own experience and in, in both as an individual salesperson, as well as like running my own company, and Steve, you probably appreciate this as well. It's like when you're sitting in front of that prospect, let's remember a really critical fact about that interaction is that you've been in that interaction a hundred times, a thousand times. That prospect has only been, this is probably the first time they've been in that sort of interaction. And if you're, especially if you're selling a new technology product, that's replacing spreadsheets or pen and paper or SharePoint. They don't even have a mental model of like, what does this product do? How does it work? How does it fit? How do I even buy software, right? I've never had to buy software before because we've been using SharePoint and Google Sheets and Excel. And so that's your opportunity to say, look, I'm the expert here. Like I'm the doctor, they're the patient, right? So it's my job to prescribe for them what those next steps are. And I think too often as a salesperson, we get into the meeting hoping to please the buyer. Like, oh, I hope they like the meeting. I hope, I hope they like the questions I ask. I hope they give me enough information. But if instead we walk into that meeting with a really clear outcome in mind and even tell the prospect before you start the meeting, say, listen, I know we've got 30 minutes, Steve. Um, and in this meeting, what I found works really well, like the best way for us to get the most out of this time is, look, if we could spend me, maybe I could spend 10 or 15 minutes. I've got five or six questions that I've prepared based on some research I've done. So if I could just get a little bit more information about where you are, what you need, what, and, and what you're struggling with, then we can spend the last 15 minutes talking about kind of what I would recommend as next steps from here. So number, and basically three things are gonna happen. Either number one, we're gonna decide that your situation is not one that we can help, in which case I'll just tell you straight up, like, hey, you're not a fit, and I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. Number two, you're gonna get really excited, and you're gonna wanna see the product. And, and number three, we're gonna, we're gonna identify that there's probably more questions that need to get asked and answered. So let's just make sure we're spending a good 10 or 15 minutes at the end of, of, of that time that we have to make sure we know which of those three paths go next. And what you've done is you just kept control of the meeting. And, and again, like for me, 
like I'm tired of making decisions, man. Like I run a company like every day I have to make, it feels like a zillion decisions. Even with the best team around you, you're just like, you get decision fatigue. And the one day, like the one meeting where I sit down and somebody on the other side is like, you know what? I got this. I'm going to run this meeting. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to accomplish. And here's what's going to happen next. I'm just like, whew, finally, I don't have to do all the freaking work here. And so people will appreciate that. And it's going to really change the, their perception of who you are as not just a salesperson, but you're like a professional that knows what to do, just like you would expect a doctor to know what to do when you walk in there as a patient. If you walked in there as a patient, you're like, hey, doc, like, you know, I'm having issues. I got, you know, I got knee pain or I got a sore throat, I'm getting migraines. And the doctor's like, ah, geez, like, I don't know. Like, what do you think we should do? Do you want to try this medicine or that medicine? <laughs> you know, like, oh, let me, uh, what, like, what books do you think I should go check out to figure out what your diagnosis is? Like, as a patient, you'd be like, what the hell? Like, I thought this is a doctor that knew what to do. And so if we take that mindset, people will appreciate the fact that you're taking control because they're tired of making decisions and they need your help to know what to do next because they don't know in most cases, especially when you're selling a technology product. It's a great framework to, to keep in mind. The, the salesperson as at, thinking like a, thinking and behaving as a doctor. You're, you're, you're the professional and doctor of your product. And, and so keeping that in mind, I think is a, is a great framework. Yeah. What, uh, what checkpoints and milestones do you think are important during the sales process? So I, that's a good, that's a really good question. And, and it's, it's funny you use the word like checkpoints or milestones because it really is like a journey, right? Checkpoints. I, I'm watching this, um, world's toughest race on uh, net or net, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon or something right now. And they have these checkpoints over this 10 day race and our milestones. It's like, it's a long journey. Right. And I think it's important for us. Number one as salespeople to know what, what is the end of that map looks like? Where, where are we trying to go? We should know as a salesperson, this is the journey. These are the checkpoints. These are the milestones that we buyer and seller need to hit together. We're on this journey together. So number one, I think that's just an important lesson is to know, like, if you don't know what the next steps are, then how are you possibly going to lead the sale and know what to do next? And your prospect is certainly not going to follow you if you don't know where to go. So that's number one. And number two, in terms of like checkpoints and milestones, I always think of it as, um, as we move further and further into the sales process, how do I almost get my prospect to prove to me that they're, that they want to make a purchase? So for example, um, if it's early in the sales process, right? I, maybe somebody requests a demo or I get some kind of lead from the marketing department. Um, I, I'm looking for ways to give that prospect, prospect homework assignments. So if I say, great, you know, good to chat with you, Steve. I'm really glad um, that we've had this conversation so I can understand a little bit more about your, about your situation. Um, what we found works is really important is that, you know, people, other people in your organization are probably going to also have a perspective on this. So you know, your CTO, your COO, your, your head of operations, whatever. Um, what would be the best way for us to set up a call with the CTO and the head of ops and the product person so we can get their perspective as well? And right there, like that to me is a milestone in the sale because if I get somebody who's willing to go, oh, okay, well, I'm not really sure because I don't have direct access to the CTO, but let me ask my manager and figure out how we get that meeting. Um, I'm actually good friends with the head of product and I, I think we can get a call scheduled with them right away and head of ops um let me just send an email right now right so what you're doing is you're getting them to give you you know to do some work for you or before a demo like a good checkpoint is like look 
love to show you a demo of the product, um, but as much as you wanna see how the product works, you probably care more about how the product might work for you. So what I'd love to do is put together a more customized demo. And so if you can send me a data file or you can send me like a sample workflow, what I can do is take that file, load it up into our platform and show it to you. So that when we do the demo, it's not just sort of like this plain, this is how the thing works. You're gonna see how it's gonna work for you. So that to me is like a checkpoint or a milestone if I get that buy-in from the prospect and they go, oh yeah, no problem, let me go get that CSV file and get that over to you by the end of the week. I, I'm, I've gotten, I'm getting buy-in from them. Um, another example is later on in the sales process. Um, maybe it's getting an NDA signed. Even if you don't require an NDA, you know, the other side might want one, you can introduce it as a step. Why would you introduce it as a step? Because you wanna know whether or not the person you're dealing with has access to legal and procurement, right? Because you could have all these great conversations and demos and like proposals and all these things happening in the middle of the organization. But then what happens if you're not dealing with ultimately decision makers that have influence in the organization? They go, oh, I gotta like run out the flagpole or ask my boss and check in. So if you ask for an NDA earlier in the sales process, it lets you know whether or not that person has leverage enough to get an NDA signed or to get you a procurement checklist and say, hey, I know we're still a couple months away from a point where we'd actually sign a contract, but as a technology company, our experience has been that your procurement team is probably gonna have like a list of requirements around things like a SOC 2 audit or ISO certification or data security. So, um, you know, why don't you grab me that, can we get a copy of that procurement checklist just so I can take a scan at it in case there's anything that might prevent us down the road from moving forward, then I can make sure that we start working on that now. Especially if you have something that regularly comes up to block deals later in the sales cycle, identifying what, the, what they are and asking those hard questions in the qualification process can really separate uh, sales reps that waste a ton of time on things that go nowhere, but seemed like they were good and, and mm -hmm. sales reps that are able to focus on the things that are actually gonna close. Yeah, and like and I, I like your your point there, Steve. It's like as a rep or a manager, like you know the stuff that comes up. There's probably like the top three reasons why deals stall in procurement or legal, right? Maybe it's like around SLAs. Like maybe you know you're, the people you're selling to, it's a Fortune 500, and they want like 99.999% uptime or something like that, or they want a 24-hour response time as part of the SLA, and you know that you're maybe not set up to do that, and you know that's going to be a sticking point down the road. So you can use that. Again, it's about controlling the sale early and saying, hey, listen, prospect, I know we're still a couple months away from the point where we would get started, but we know that when we work with companies like you, oftentimes SLAs, SLAs can be a big sticky point with the legal department. You probably have your requirements. We have what we know we can do. So you know, that's an example of why we want to get that procurement checklist just to make sure that there are any potential landmines down the road that we can address those sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's really smart to set up these checkpoints um, and milestones in your sales process. What are, are there other checkpoints that you'd recommend setting up along the way that uh, I, I really like some of the ideas you just gave there. Are there, are there more? Yeah, I, um, this is something I learned from uh, Chris Duggan, who is the, he's been a multi-time founder. He was um, first head of sales, like head of sales that got to WebEx, grew WebEx, and then he's been an advisor at Palantir. He started a company, started a company called Better Growth. Uh, or not better growth, betterment. Um, betterment. Better, better, better works. I think. Better works. Better something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I know him. I, I haven't talked to him in a few years. So. 
Yeah, so he was an advisor uh, when I was at Blend. So I was head of sales at Blend, which is a lending software company. And when I was head of sales there, uh, we had Chris come in and just give some perspective about like large enterprise sales, because that's what he did at WebEx. He had that experience advising Palantir and some, some other companies. And so um, we talked about these sort of these checklists or these milestones. And um, one of the things that we talked about oftentimes were, were things like you know, proof of concepts or pilots of some kind. And almost like forecasting for people down the road. It's like, for example, you're running this demo, you have this really great demo, one of your future paid, one of the ways you can future pace is like, look, coming out of this demo, a lot of people wonder how is this thing gonna work for us? And so one of the things we can do is set up a POC. You know, why don't we set up a POC? And that can be a checkpoint so that there's no money getting exchanged. But what that does is it forces the system audit to happen. And this is what Chris talked about, like doing what he calls a system audit. So looking at their systems, their processes, like where is the data stored? Um, how do we get data out? Are they using, you know, COBOL and AS400? <laughs> or are they using a more modern platform? And so by doing that systems audit as part of a POC, that can be a big checkpoint because the business team might get all excited about your product and how it's going to solve their business problem, but then they flip it over to the technology team or the IT team and go, hey, we want to buy the software. Um, we need you to integrate with our current system. And the IT team is like, oh crap, like we can't, or we don't have time, or we don't want to. And so by introducing a systems audit, it allows us as salespeople to get a sense for how easy or hard is this going to be with implementation and integration? Because that's also going to affect price down the road if all of a sudden really hard integration and we've got to do a bunch of extra work with our sales engineers or they're going to have to hire an outside consultant to come in and do some of the integrations for you like we need to know that ahead of time because we could give a quote to the business team and then we find out later like oh crap actually implementation is going to take an extra three months because you're using some old piece of technology and so that's a way for us to not only get a checkpoint but to get a lot more visibility as to what we're actually up against when it comes to the implementations and how we should be pricing out the, the implementations that we're doing. Well, the next section of our, of our, uh, our show today is sales in 60 seconds. So okay. quick questions, quick answers. Um, so you, you've interviewed so many sales experts and leaders on your podcast over the years. What's mm -hmm. one piece of advice or lesson that stuck with you? Sell every day. Sell every day. Uh, it's so easy to get lost in the trap of like process and project management and meetings and internal and and, and like even myself as a founder of a company, I'm I have to remind myself, if anything, just do your ten. Like literally, sit down. It's so easy to sit down in front of LinkedIn. You can send out ten connection requests to people that are in your target market, or check out who's viewed your profile or who's viewed a, a post that you've done, somebody likes your post or secondary connection, they're in your target market, like, just like send them a connection request. Hey, thanks for liking the post, checking out what you're doing. Really, really like it. You know, let me know if you ever need some help, thought we might connect. Like you've got to keep this, you've got like, as a salesperson, we oftentimes forget that we're supposed to be selling every day. And if you look at your calendar, your, cal your calendar, like if, if you're, if you feel like oh, I'm not closing enough deals or I'm not converting enough or I'm, like I'm, I'm behind on quota, you know, one of the things that I learned is show me your calendar and I'll show you your cash flow. And if I look at your meetings, if I look at your calendar and you're like, well, like Friday is like internal meeting day and like Thursday afternoon, I'm time, time with product. And then I've got this customer success stuff. And then I'm like, 
you know, responding to emails and you realize like you're probably only selling like 10 hours a week. Well, no wonder you're behind. No wonder you don't have any leads. No wonder you don't have enough deals. No wonder you're not converting. So you got to like your job is to sell, go out and sell every day. And that's, that holds true whether you're a salesperson, you're a manager, or you're a founder of a company like you are, you are Steve. Like, just go out there and sell every day. You've got to keep going out there every single day. If you had three minutes with a prospect, what would you say to them? Oh, man. Um, three minutes, like a prospect for our company or just in general? In, in general. What, what do you think the key messages are to a prospect if you've only got, you know, the, the elevator pitch amount of time, maybe a little more? It's a long elevator, three minutes. <laughs> um, I, what I would do is I would say, listen, prospect, um, I know we only have three minutes, so I'm just going to start with one really simple question. And then we can decide where to take the conversation from there. Um, the question is this, like our company helps, you know, we help early stage B2B tech startups get from early revenue to their first million in the next 12 months. Is that an outcome that you're looking to get to right now? Yes or no? And I go, no, I'm not. That's not important to us right now, or that's not who we are. You go, okay, well, that's good to know. It doesn't sound like I'm, the right guy for you right now. So no need to spend the rest of the time. Or I could use the rest of the time asking a couple more questions just to see if there's some other way. Um, but if they go, yeah, that is an outcome that we're trying to get to. They go, great. So do you mind if I ask you a couple more questions about your current situation to see where we might be able to help you? And they probably go, yeah, that sounds good. And now I've bought myself that time. So I'm a fan of asking permission to ask questions. I think a lot of times it's easy to just like jump in start asking questions. If you ask people, hey, would it be okay if I asked you a few questions about this or that? Would that be okay? And they'll always say yes, but from a mindset standpoint, they're not feeling interrogated, they've opted in. So that's how I would approach those three minutes. What do you think the most challenging part of sales is? Hmm, man, I need 60 seconds just to think about that. The most challenging part about sales um, I think, I, I think a lot of people would say rejection, like dealing with rejection and all of those things. Um, I, I mean, I think for me, it's persistence, it's persistence. And so, and, and the reason I say persistence is two things that come to mind. Number one is, um, like going back to selling every day. Like it's, it's easy to get into like the doldrums. It's easy to get out of the habit of doing your 10 or doing your prospecting or making the calls that you know you're supposed to make. Um, and it's just human behavior, right? It's just, this stuff is hard. You got to step forward and take that action, take that initiative. So that, that's part of this persistence. The second part of persistence though is, what I mean by that is actually following through with clients or prospects that you've already had conversations with. So, I think it's, it's easy to say like, oh, we had the demo, they said, send them a follow-up email and then they get back to me. I sent the email and they didn't get back to me. So what do I do? I'll probably send a second follow-up email and they didn't get back to me. And I think too often people give up right there. And I think you just need to persist and just know that there's just a lot of people that are really freaking busy. They're not ignoring you. They probably saw your message and they just didn't have the mental capacity at that moment or the time to get back to you. And if they're really that interested as a prospect, they will appreciate the persistence. I think we've all been in situations where you've had a prospect 
that will literally reply back to an email after it's your seventh or eighth attempt. And they will say, thank you for your persistence. Those are the words they will use. And so if you if you really feel like you can solve that problem and you know that you're the best position to do it and you believe in the product, you owe it to the prospect to follow through. Cause this is the only thing you care about is selling your thing. Whereas from their standpoint, it's like one of 20 things they're probably dealing with every single day. And I think that's hard for people. Yeah, I, I, I do. I agree with you. I think a, uh, a steady follow-up and like having an organized follow-up process and staying on top of the 300 things that a salesperson is doing is one of the hardest parts of sales. Um, you know, and on the email thing, I was just talking the other day with a, a, a friend of mine who's an executive at Apple and, uh, and so he's a, he's a buyer for a bunch of stuff, right? Services and consulting. And, you know, he's a kind of, uh, he, and it's funny to hear him, hearing him talk on the buyer's side. It's always interesting for me to hear buyers talk about things. And like, he's like, oh yeah, you know, I, my inbox gets cluttered every, you know, about once a month. I just, uh, I just clear the whole thing out. I figure if anything's important, people will come back and, and ask, yeah. ask me for it again or whatever. Cause like, if it's more mm-hmm. than a month old, you know, in my world, it's just not important anymore. And salespeople can't act like it, it, two, two lessons there. One salespeople can't act like that because we would never sell anything. Cause a lot of sales cycles just take longer than that. We, we, the salesperson has to be the organized one who's, you know, showing up, you know, making the phone, showing up in front of, getting in front of people, making the phone calls, sending the emails, like keeping the, keeping the relationship going. But also like they, you know, that, so I guess that's, that's one point, like the, the buyers often don't have to do that. They don't have to be the ones that are organized uh, in that way. But, but B just, you know, the obvious point is that, you know, he's, he, it's like once if, if it's old, it doesn't matter to him. And so he's like, yeah, I just deleted it all. And so, and, and so you have to, it, it it's why salespeople need to be so persistent and need to need to stay on it because, um, you know, for a, a role like his, like he doesn't, if it's old, it's already been taken care of, right? Like if it was important and if it was important and still not fixed, so like one of the people that works for him would have brought it up again, or, you know, someone would have asked for it again, or, you know, it, it but I mean, I, I, I've never, I've never lived my life that way and I can't imagine it, but I've always been more on like the, the, selling side of of businesses right so i can't i can't imagine just like you know selecting all and you know archiving it all <laughs> it would be, be a wonderful feeling sure. <laughs> the, the few times in my life i've gotten to every single email or finished my task list you know like <laughs> um but uh so Sales, it's, sales is a very stressful career, right? Like what, what would you say your best tips for managing stress effectively are? Well, I mean, for me personally, I, I, I mean, I have, a, I have hobbies. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, physically, I, uh, I get a lot of stress out through, I do ultra running. I'm an ultra runner. So um, usually training for some kind of crazy distance race, like a hundred mile or 200 mile race. So for me, it's, it's a place, um, and I make that an everyday thing. It's like persistence on that too, even through COVID. Um, I was about, we were about two weeks into shutdown and I think it was like a Friday night. It's either Friday or Saturday. And, you know, we had some pizza here. I have an eight year old son, pizza, beer for me, not for him, uh, movie night. And I remember, and I don't drink a lot. I had like two beers, two IPAs, which I really enjoyed. And I woke up Sunday morning or Saturday morning and I just felt like kind of groggy, 
like ate a lot, little too much pizza, had two beers and I didn't exercise the day before and I just didn't feel right. It's just like, you just, you're not sharp. And I'm like, this is the weekend. Like this is the one day I get to like, hopefully relax a little bit. And so it was that, that day I decided um, for the, however long shutdown is going to last, I'm going to exercise every day, every day, even if it's eight minutes in the garage, I've got a, a small home gym that I, we put together kettlebells and some weights and stuff. I'm like if it's eight minutes and I'm doing kettlebell swings and pushups, that counts, right? It's just like, it's just this, the, just the physical endorphins that get released, your body chemistry will change. It does change when you exercise and break a sweat and get breathing going. Uh, so there's that piece of it, which is like a separation for me because you get so anxious around emails and phone calls and customers and this and everything happened. And then there's and anxious about homeschooling, trying to figure out what to do and balancing what life with my wife, with her work as a PhD economist, research economist. It's like, it's stressful. Life is stressful, whether you're in shutdown or COVID or not. So number one is just like exercising every day and having that separate goal, uh, that separate outcome for myself. Um, so that's, that's one piece. And then related to that, I think is just, you know, just finding time to, make time for yourself, put yourself, and I use the, the term yourself as two words with the S, capital S, put yourself first. And, and, then, and it's okay. Like I tell myself this, and I talk to my wife about this, like I just need a little bit of time. She's never said to me, no, you can't have any time to yourself today. She's never said, I know you're really stressed, but like you can't take 30 minutes to go to the garage and decompress. She's never told me that. Like you gotta put yourself first. You gotta put your own mental, physical, state spiritual state like first because if you're not your best self you can't be your best self for your wife or your spouse or your partner or your kid your husband your customers your teammates like if, if you're stressed they're gonna feel it so you've got it you've got to put yourself first to be your best self so because it affects everyone else and and i and i'm not i'm, I'm never ashamed to do that and i tell my wife i'm like look i I know we're really busy. Like, I just need 30 minutes in the garage. And she's like, okay. Cause she does the same with me. She's like, look, can you just do dinner tonight? Cause like, I, I just can't, I got, I gotta get some exercise in. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So just put yourself first. And for me, it's exercise because of all of the crazy races that I do. Sure. Or are there any other daily habits or routines that, uh, that you do to me to be more productive? Yeah, for me, um, I started a, a morning routine. It's been about eight years now. Um, I started doing what are called morning pages, which is Julia Cameron. Uh, she wrote a book called The Artist's Way, and it was designed. It's a, she works with artists, um, you know, actors, um, writers, you know, people that do physical art. And uh, the idea of morning pages is that it just helps you unblock. First thing you do in the morning, first thing I do in the morning, very first thing in the morning, I wake up, turn the coffee on, and then I sit down and I write three longhand pages in a notebook. And it's just like a brain dump of everything that's in my head. Sometimes it's talking about things I'm thankful for. Sometimes it's things I'm stressed about. Sometimes it's just like planning the day ahead. It just, it's quiet time, 30 minutes. It takes me about 30 minutes to drink my first cup of coffee and I do that before the rest of the house wakes up. And that just helps me get like, okay, I'm like centered on my day. Um, most days I do, uh, I don't do it every day. I'd say probably like three or four days a week I meditate. I come and go with doing meditation. I do anywhere from like 10 to 15 minutes, just quiet, legs crossed, breathing, air in, air out, taking nice deep breaths, just again to calm myself. So those, that's like the first 45 minutes to an hour 
of my day is just doing those two things. And then um, later on in the day, in the afternoons is when I'll get some exercise in and make sure I do that uh, every day. So those are kind of the three things. If I do those three things, even if I don't get anything else done at work, at least I have a much better chance of sleeping that night. <laughs> so uh, as an actionable takeaway, what should the field salespeople listening today do as a first step towards getting started on scaling their sales success? Um, I would, I would like, if it's the very first thing that I would do, I would look at your, your day or your week or whatever that, you know, sort of like normal batch of activity is. I would look at like, what are, I would look for two things. I would look for what is one thing that you're not doing enough of that, you know, you should be doing and what is number and so that you can start to build that into your schedule. We talked about, you should be selling every day, for example. And number two, look for what are, what are the things that you're doing that you don't like to do? Because there's something that's like every week, oh, I got to do that thing or every day I got to do that thing. And I just don't like to do it and look for ways to either get somebody else to do it for you, delegate it out, look for ways to automate it. Um, because if, you, if, the, if that one thing, even if it's like a five minute task and it drags you down mentally and it's happening at like two in the afternoon, it just wrecks the rest of your day. So I would look for, like, I try to look for ways to remove stuff just as much as I look to add stuff to the calendar. So if there's something you don't like, you don't, you don't want to do, or it's just a big drag, you got to identify that and try to get it out or at least find a way to, to deal with it in a way that doesn't drag you down during the rest of the day or the week. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to attempt to summarize the wisdom that you've given us today here. So, First, we talked about hustling and how hustling is not enough because eventually you'll run out of energy and time. Scott, Scott recommended building scalable actions that can help you build your sales. During meetings with prospects, salespeople should focus on the problem before they go to the product. You gotta ask yourself, what problem are you solving for your prospects? Understand the problems your prospects have so that you can walk into each meeting and talk on a peer-to-peer -peer level. Be an expert in, in their issues. One thing you can do is ask current happy customers about their, prospect, their process and, and ask them how they've been using your solution to solve their challenges. Then you can bring in these case studies that you've, you've gathered, this information that you've gathered from those current happy customers, um, and you can help your prospects understand how that you'll be able to benefit them as well. Sharing these customer stories can really help. I think you know, your, your prospects can end up uh, more open after you've shared stories of this nature with them. They'll, they'll be more open about their problems. And, uh, and you can help director level stakeholders get a clearer view of the problem that your prospect is experiencing. Because sometimes people at the top of the organization don't necessarily understand what's, uh, what's going on at the bottom of the organization. Um, you can share your customer stories with the rest of your sales team, uh, maybe in a Google doc, maybe in a platform, lots of ways to do this so that everyone can share these same stories. Uh, don't go into meetings just trying to please the buyer. Go into each sales meeting with an outcome in mind. You can keep control of a meeting by stating the plan that you have in mind for the meeting and leading the prospect through that plan. 
Finally, use checkpoints in the sales process to understand how the deal is moving forward or if there are sticking points. Scott, this has been such valuable information. Where, where can our listeners read more about your work? How can they reach out to you to learn more about, about you and what you do? Um, best place to go is just our company website, salesqualia, Q-U-A-L-I-A.com. Um, and then the book that you mentioned, Stop Hustling, Start Scaling, right there on the homepage, there's a big button where you can actually download a personal copy of the book. You're, people are always welcome to go buy a copy on Amazon. Um, I prefer to actually just get as many copies of this book out to people that need to, to, that need to read it. So you just pop in your email address, we'll email you a PDF, full complete copy of the book, personal copy of Stop Hustling, Start Scaling. And that will also, of course, add you to our email list so that when we're doing trainings, LinkedIn Lives, webinars, uh, other content, podcasts of our own, uh, you'll be notified about that stuff and you can learn a lot more about what we do from there. So that's it. Go to salesqualia.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, Scott. This has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If anyone can think of other sales reps that would benefit from learning about what Scott's taught us today, uh, feel free to share the love and forward this uh, podcast onto them. And uh, please leave a rating for the podcast if you get a chance. It's, uh, it really helps spread the word. Take care until next time, everybody. Bye.